0: This week on The Bioneers, our guest is activist Tom Hayden.
1: Pragmatism is now a dirty word, but if you look under it, it means listen first, see how far people are willing to go, and improvise a step forward towards survival as rapidly as you can.
0: It's Spirit in the Air Reform, Revolution, and Regeneration on The Bioneers. Support for the Bioneers' Revolution from the Heart of Nature is provided in part by Organic Valley Family of Farms, funding also provided by a grant from the Park Foundation, and by the generous support of listeners like you. As Mark Twain reputedly said, history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. History shows an arc of cycles of massive social change when breakdown leads to breakthrough. Times when life becomes so unbearable that something's got to give. Survival becomes the mother of invention. In these times, personal biography can coincide with historical epics to produce leaders who embody the spirit of the times. Tom Hayden is one of those leaders. He holds the long view of social change movements, the arc of struggle that has led to this epic moment, When the climate crisis and the crisis of inequality are colliding with global civilization, and survival is again the mother of invention. This is Spirit in the Air, Reform, Revolution, and Regeneration, with lifelong activist, author, politician, organizer, and visionary Tom Hayden. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. We are people of this generation, bred in at least modest comfort, housed now in universities, looking uncomfortably to the world we inherit. This opening sentence of the 1962 Port Huron Statement of SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, was a manifesto heard around the world. It helped launch the game-changing 1960s student movements. It called for a genuinely participatory democratic political system. It's a vision Tom Hayden is still working to realize five decades later. Tom Hayden spoke at a Bioneers conference.
1: It was 27,000 words long. It tried to express a vision of our generation. We'd come through the um, Freedom Rides and the beginning of what would become the free speech movement, and about 62 people gathered in Port Huron, Michigan, and I wrote the document. It's true, but in order to write the document, I interviewed tons of people, I wrote it, and then it was somehow rewritten in a five-day period. The way I feel about it, in retrospect, is that the Port Huron statement wrote us, that there was a spirit in the air, there was a consensus in the air. James Joyce said the same thing about his writing 50 years earlier, That what he was trying to write was the unwritten consciousness of his generation. So the knowledge, the feeling, the the mix is in the generational experience.
0: Hayden began writing the Port Huron Statement while sitting in a Georgia jail for organizing to end racial segregation and enlisting students nationally in the civil rights movement. He went on to pursue a lifelong calling as an organizer and advocate for racial justice, the anti-war and peace movements, social justice, and the environment. His own personal lineage seeded his journey.
1: I was born at a moment that the New Deal saved my family. It was before and during my birth and my first two or three years that this happened, so I can only go back and listen to people and ask, what happened. What happened is that my grandfather died in a cannery accident, the fault of the Carnation Milk Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He fell in a vat and was chopped up. He left my grandma with 11 kids and this was during the Depression and she survived during the Depression and took care of those kids. And During that time, she was sustained by a $5,000 check from the company with regret for the death of her husband. There was no pension. There was no Social Security. There were no rights of organized labor. Her world fell apart in the late 20s, early 30s. I don't remember all that much about her, but I remember her as being sort of the quintessential nanny, you know, the grandmother, and all these kids. And what they were doing in the Depression was huddling up together like students do today, five to an apartment who don't know each other, and they were selling apples, and they were doing odd jobs together and pooling what little they made every day in order to buy food and pay the bills to get to the next day. They were not political. This is a key point in my sharing with you that I believe with Seawright Mills that we have to reach people who are in their personal milieu and their problem is that they're detached from history and social structure. They don't know what has happened to them. They are in a catastrophe and they are prone if they're working people to think there's something wrong with them, their ethnicity, their class, their lack of education. They're not prone to automatically blame an outside aggressor. That would take a level of pride and insolence and um, insubordination, so to speak, a mutinous mentality that they don't have. They're survivors and they know a lot. I'm not saying they lack knowledge, they know a lot in the middle of this process of the collapse of capitalism, the collapse of what government we had, there were the stirrings of the New Deal.
0: As society's contradictions reached the breaking point, diverse and sometimes conflicting social movements, strategies, and ideologies emerged from the desperation and chaos of the Great Depression.
1: What happened was this strange mix of A revolutionary impulse on the one hand, a liberal impulse from do-gooders who wanted a better government, second. People in the center who were very frightened at the possibility of social disorder and were timid about raising their head. And then people on the right, like my priest, Father Charles Coughlin, who was busy organizing an anti-Semitic response to the very same conditions and working closely with Henry Ford on the uh, idea of a new Nazi party based in uh, my hometown of Royal Oak or Hamtramck. The people on the far right thought Roosevelt was a communist. I don't remember if they questioned his birth. Um, (laughs) but, But he was leading us to a Soviet America. Some of the people on the left thought that was a great idea, Soviet America. Communist Party led, organizing drives in manufacturing plants, got nowhere, people got fired, got clubbed down, beat up, shot. Anarchists tried to do it in their horizontal way, uh, to borrow the current language of the current movement. Trotskyists kept attacking everyone on both sides for not following the correct line. Farmers, I don't remember if they picked up pitchforks, but they went to work against the banks and the, the Grange. and there were people who said, okay, we're gonna invest in the rebuilding of America and after the war in a Marshall Plan for the world. And they cut a deal without a handshake, as far as I know, but the capitalist class, the finance capitalists divided over whether they thought their obligation was to reform the system in order to stabilize their profit or crack down on these insurgents and stop them in their tracks and go all the way to drive them off the political map towards God knows what kind of system we would have had. On the other hand, you had labor and social movements and populist movements where the argument was, should we take the right to collective bargaining or go all the way to socialism? It was kind of like 1919, and I was there too when uh, the socialists told the suffragettes, all the way with socialism first, then you women will get your right to vote. And the women said, not taking that offer, thank you very much, some of us are socialists, some are not, but we want the right to vote. Most people that I would identify with were organizers. They were selfless people who didn't work for much money, didn't think far ahead, to the careers that they would hold as future labor bureaucrats or Democratic Party administrators. <laughs> they wanted to know if they'd have their heads crushed by a policeman's baton. And they were willing to do that. There was another group, maybe a little like some people you know are the scientists today in climate science. They were known as the brain trust of the New Deal. And they were a very eclectic group of people who were brainy intellectuals, they were probably in the most important American tradition that I've ever studied and I consider myself part of, the American pragmatic tradition. And I know that pragmatism is now a dirty word, but if you look under it, it means listen first, see how far people are willing to go, and improvise a step forward a program that will take you a little bit towards survival or a little bit towards a better life as rapidly as you can.
0: As the Great Depression ground on, the first order of business for most people was survival.
1: My mom went through this, the orphan of father she hardly knew. When I was growing up at the uh, end of the um, 30s and the beginning of the uh, Great War, I remember sitting on her lap a lot, and she'd always talk to me about how she loved Roosevelt. And I didn't know who Roosevelt was. I just thought, Roosevelt, that's God. (laughs) My mother loves God, and God is, Roosevelt is taking care of us. She would keep saying that. Because by that time, after these revolutionary inciting of working people and average everyday people, they had achieved social security. And I can't tell you what that would mean for my mother when she's thinking about grandpa. They achieved uh, bargaining rights for organized labor, unheard of, seemingly impossible. They achieved pensions and all the rest of it. And they had achieved what was known as the New Deal, but at the time it was being built, they did not call it the New Deal. They called it the movement.
0: While the 1% of their time waged fierce class war, the New Deal Brain Trust crafted an unprecedented and seemingly unattainable set of social programs. To break the vicious cycle of the concentration of wealth and power, somehow they had to match the overwhelming money power with a countervailing force.
1: The whole idea of industrial workers being organized, the whole idea of old-age pensions, of doing something about the Buddhist lament that life is all about suffering, delivering people social security, having to sit at a table and argue about whether we can also do health care, being told by the president, we don't have the votes, we can't do that. Some future generation will fight for health care. That's how the New Deal was pounded out, it was improvised by very creative people who dared to take it on and who simply believed that their current lives were unlivable. And they didn't have to be poor to know that. It was just an unlivable situation with fascism approaching over here and with depression never seeming to end. Out of that pragmatic determination, they decided the government has got to hire people, the government has got to protect people, The government is what saved my mother and why she loved Franklin Roosevelt. For those reasons, not ideological. And when we come to that point, when people are unable to be trapped in ideology, but are willing to do what works, that's the time when I think we'll have the equivalent of a new deal for the climate catastrophe.
0: In the tradition of American pragmatism, Tom Hayden channeled some of his activism from the 1960s into government. It was a unique historical moment coming out of the birth of the modern environmental movement and a growing awareness the world was on a collision course with nature. Hayden joined the administration of California Governor Jerry Brown in 1974, who had unexpectedly gained office as a maverick candidate. Tom Hayden spoke with us at a Bioneers conference.
1: It was the end of Nixon-Watergate, the end of the Vietnam War, around the corner, and the Arab oil boycott. So suddenly the issue of energy and dependency on fragile supplies had come sort of to the forefront of the public mind. And he was positioned to talk about that He was very close to the early circle of solar visionaries who lived in the Bay Area. But he was the first to articulate it while running for a major office, you know, governor of California. And he took quite a a bashing for it. And it shows that sometimes it's true that there'll be an unusual political leader who introduces an issue that nobody knows about and a lot of people are against and he wins it was just that kind of moment there was a movement against nuclear power called the no nukes movement which the governor attached himself to when he ran for president and he was hell-bent on preventing nuclear plants from being placed on the california coast again you know it just seemed like um, one of a kind
0: Governor Jerry Brown appointed Hayden chairman of the state's Solar Energy Council. They invented innovative policies that migrated to become national policy and global models, from air pollution controls and automobile fuel efficiency standards to solar rebates and energy efficiency incentives. For 18 years, Hayden went on to serve in the California Legislature, where he helped usher in the California Energy Commission's exemplary solar programs. But as with all movements, it's often one step forward and two steps backward.
1: I think what killed us was the uh, coming of the Republicans, the Reagan administration, this sort of like, who needs this? You just need to be more robust on oil and gas, and it just kind of faded. I went in a different direction and spent many years opposing wars like Iraq or Afghanistan, where... You could see the other end of the energy issue, that we're plundering these countries and burning these countries to the ground with smoke belching everywhere in order to obtain more gas and oil to continue our lifestyle and our economy. So I always thought that the issues of war and uh, energy were one and the same, because I haven't seen any wars lately that aren't about energy. There are other things, religion, of course, and so on. But, And then when the governor ran again, he made a clear pronouncement at some point that we needed to decarbonize the economy. And It's not a popular slogan, since nobody knows what you're talking about. It sounds like you want to take the pop out of cherry cola. What is decarbonization? But I knew what he was talking about. So when Brown said he was going to devote two terms if he was elected, create 500,000 clean energy jobs, meet the U.N. mandates for the lowering of the greenhouse gases, I felt obliged to lend a hand, to do what I could. Not as part of the administration, although I know all those people, but it's helpful with my age. There's a benefit, like I remember what came before, how quickly successes can be derailed, how careful you have to be And there's no new arguments on this issue. There's only continuing arguments. And a lot of the new activists are in that great phase, like Young Love, of discovering their passion and discovering their ideas, not even knowing that these ideas
0: have preceded them. Indeed, Governor Brown's 21st century administration has demonstrated a global model for a viable clean energy economy. The number of clean energy jobs has grown from 23,000 in the early 70s to 199,000, twice as many as the state's fossil fuel industry. Environmental justice and jobs for underserved communities are a centerpiece. As the world's eighth largest economy, California is conducting game-changing, clean energy direct diplomacy with countries around the world, including China. And in 2015, California launched a global climate compact for cities, states, and regions. The so-called Under-2 MOU includes 128 jurisdictions from 28 countries so far, representing 740 million people and over a quarter of the global GDP. Tom Hayden sees history rhyming yet again.
1: My sense is the most we're going to accomplish here, which is quite a lot when you think of the state of the planet, is a global Green New Deal. We have precious little time to get there, but we know from the science that it is inevitable that things will get worse. And it's also, to me, inevitable from my experience that people will fight back. There are people who argue that there's no climate problem, but we had those people. There are people who are fascistic in their inclinations. There's people who, unfortunately, ideologically, they believe in a market, even though there really is no pure market. It's all government supported through incentives or taxes or mandates. But somebody has to cut a deal. Unless you believe that we have to have revolution first and then save the planet, if you believe that, I advise you to listen. Just go to meetings in your community, in your PTA, in your neighborhood and ask, get up actually and say, I want a revolution first, what do you people think? <laughs> and, and you'll see that they're not there now. <laughs> they might be thinking about it, but it's all one step at a time.
0: Tom Hayden says the global goal today must be 100% clean energy, and there's an intergenerational movement crystallizing to back it up. For a pragmatic politician, he says, it's time for the magician or the sorcerer to take these ideas and turn them into material benefits in everyday life.
1: I would observe without being hopeful that it's an evolutionary principle that each generation chooses between struggle and uh, denial or they become a lost generation. There's a very great danger now of having a lost generation because they're hearing these things like the world will end, your life will be shorter, your health will be worse, there's no jobs out there except for about 10% of you. That will lead at best to a new beat generation of poets and artists and nihilists at best or you'll just get enough people who won't take it because they're young, they have appetites, they have dreams, they have desires. They just, they can't really hear that it's over. They kind of teach themselves from scratch. They look for advice from the elders. They sit around reading endless books and they invent movements. And I think an evolutionary biologist should take a look at it because it's the principle of regeneration. When they were 14, they heard it was over. And by the time they were 18, they decided they wouldn't take that. And they've invented these forms of struggle, which are really impressive. There is this struggle between two tendencies, the death instinct, life instinct, some people would say, hopelessness versus hope. Desire when you're young is very powerful. You're 18 and you wanna make the most of your life and you're just unable to relate to people who say you have no future. And thank God they're here. They're incredible.
0: Over 50 years ago, the Port Huron statement Tom Hayden helped write closed with these words. If we appear to seek the unattainable, as it has been said, then let it be known that we do so to avoid the unimaginable. History rhymes yet again. Spirit in the Air, Reform, Revolution, and Regeneration with Tom Hayden. You can see and hear more from Tom Hayden, And explore more Bioneers radio programs, podcasts, and videos online at Bioneers.org. The Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute. Executive Producer, Kenny Ossebel, Written by Kenny Ossebel. Senior Producer and Station Relations, Stephanie Welch. Host and Consulting Producer, Neil Harvey. Program Engineer, Emily Harris. Production Assistants, Tina Rubio and Melanie Choi. Interview recording engineer Jeff Westman. Our theme music is co-written by the Baca Forest People of Cameroon and Baca Beyond from the album East to West. All royalties from Baca compositions and performances go to the Baca Forest People through the charity Global Music Exchange. Find out more at globalmusicexchange.org. Additional music was made available by New Earth Records at newearthrecords.com and Acoustic Music Records at acoustic-music.de. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 0716. This program was made possible in part by Organic Valley's pasture-raised organic dairy products, bringing the good from our family farmers to your table at organicvalley.coop. Funding also provided by a grant from the Park Foundation dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues and by the generous support of listeners like you. If you love Bioneers Radio, it's free and easy to support us. Just take a moment to post a review on our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you find our show online. You'll be helping other people find and enjoy these incredible thinkers and storytellers. And thank you for helping us out.